Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we're talking about concentrated stock positions, what they are, how they come to be, where do restricted stock units or RSUs fit into the equation, and what are some strategies to potentially work around it and to manage a concentrated stock position. Justin, I feel like a good spot, we won't spend too much time here to start the episode is just to quickly and briefly define what is a concentrated stock position and and is that a is that a good thing or a bad thing? Absolutely. So a concentrated stock position, uh, we would consider that any single company that you have exposure to with more than 10% of your investable assets. And so take quick math. If you have a million dollars, you shouldn't have more than $100,000 into one company. If you have $5 million, you probably shouldn't have more than 500000 into one company. And if, if you look at a textbook, like if you are studying to become a CFP for some reason, and you want to see what a textbook financial planning answer is, there it, it really is going to say 5 to 10%. And so when we say 10%, uh, that's even taking some liberty. And I, I love this topic. I think this is a critical topic for a few reasons. So many of our listeners, so many people that are working at a large oil and gas company have a concentrated stock position. Whether it's because of NUA, your stock plan is inside of your 401k, or maybe you have RSUs, uh, you could also have phantom stock options, incentivized stock options, uh, so many different uh, ways that you can have a stock plan within your company. But it is very common in this industry to have a large stock position. And so that has huge investment ramifications. We are Brownlee Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. And so understanding the investment ramifications is substantial, uh, but it also has huge tax consequences. Uh, also has very large uh, consequences when it comes to providing a retirement income. So at what point are you financially free? Are you financially independent? Uh, navigating your concentrated stock position is a, a really critical part of that equation. It touches really every part of your financial planning life. Yeah, absolutely. And you're exactly right. That that 10% number, that's just a baseline, you know, rule of thumb. Not definitely not investment advice or not personal. But another couple of nuances to to kind of clarify there. If you are currently employed at an oil and gas company, that number should likely be less. Cause if you think about all of your assets, right? Human capital being one of them, if that's also tied to an employer, your your concentrated stock above and beyond just owning the company stock inside your portfolio is actually higher because they cut your paychecks. And you know, this is also for the person who's financially independent and done a great job accumulating. If 20% of your net worth is tied to this stock, but it's not, you know, your ability to retire or be financially independent is independent of that position. You could make a case that, that it could continue to be held, even though it's above the rule of thumb. So there's definitely, definitely some nuance there. And we'll kind of unpack that and, and how that manifests itself in actual portfolio construction and what strategies recommended. But I think it's a good, you know, so that's what- That's a good point. What concentrated stock is. Let's talk about why. So, so the why is really important because the why you have concentrated stock is, it, it'll kind of inform the narrative as to as to how you 
move out of the concentrated stock. So there's a great phrase, uh, concentration builds wealth, diversification preserves it, right? And I don't know who said that, but it's just, it's a great idea. So, you know, if you look at attribution, so many companies do poorly, but the S&P does well, right? So having so much of your assets tied to a single oil and gas company can create an outsized risk, right? So to the best of our ability, we want to try to move out of that. But getting back to why you have the concentrated stock, there's really kind of a few big reasons we've we've identified. A lot of times it's because it has remarkably low basis. So any sale would be would create a significant taxable event. So people will come to us with with a lot of company stock and it's got really low basis. So there's a lot of big tax consequences. So there's a little pain to liquidating that position. So that's that's one of the big reasons why. The second biggest reason is the cyclicality of oil, right? Oil oil may be in a slump and, and there's a volatility. And because it's a commodity, there's there's even probably more so volatility than than maybe the average stock market holding. But you know, oil may be in a slump and and your prospects or, or where you think the price is is well below what reasonable averages are. Um, and, and that's that's really another reason why why you may hold it. I think that's important. A quick thought on that point. So when you think about the cyclicality of this industry, and if you're going to hold positions, uh, pick any pick any super major name. Uh, obviously, we've seen over the last two years, over the last five years, significant ups and downs within within individual stocks and the industry as a whole. The reason I, I think this topic's important is most investment firms, and this is a little bit of a generalization, but I think a lot of investment firms, a lot of CFPs kind of treat this as a uh, black and white issue, and it's an open shut case. Um, and so there's so many different firms that would say, well, if you have 12% exposure to this company, you need to sell today and you need to get down to 5% or 10%. And you know we won't jump the gun. We're going to talk about strategies to deal with concentrated positions uh, here in a little bit. Uh, but that may be a really big mistake to just go black and white and make an absolute decision um, immediately with a concentrated stock position, uh, because there are tax ramifications. Also, you know there's there's a lot of reasons why you may want to continue to have some exposure. You may not want to sell a concentrated position if that industry is 70% down from where it was a year or two ago. Now, there's a lot of different ways to make up for that, but so often uh, you'll see investment firms really give a textbook answer. And Jared, I think we've talked about this in some prior podcasts, but you know, to kind of take you under the hood a little bit, uh, the way that a lot of Wall Street firms operate, so if you think of a, a, any, any large nationwide you know, financial services firm that you can think of, a lot of them have a handful of portfolios and they're going to give their clients a risk tolerance survey and there's nothing wrong with that. That's right and good. But they're going to take that risk tolerance survey and they're going to say, okay, you have a moderate risk tolerance. So you're going to go into our 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio. And there's 5 million other people in that same portfolio. And so the easiest way for a giant firm to operate is to take millions of clients and to put them all into the same canned model portfolio. That is drastically easier and cheaper uh, for a big company to do rather than individually looking through all of your positions. Uh, so when you think about the cyclicality of oil and gas stocks, it's important to remember that. Is your advisor pointing you to selling and diversifying simply because that's what they do with, with every single client that they see? They see every problem as a nail and they've got a hammer. They're going to take your funds, put them into 
their CAN portfolio, regardless of the tax consequences and regardless of your position exposure and, and how you should best do that. And so I just want to mention that point because when you think about the, the two areas, low basis and uh, the cyclicality, that's why this entire topic needs to be handled with care. Um, this is not a mass-produced solution where you can just you know, put people down an assembly line and everybody gets the same solution. It really needs to be a little bit more tailored uh, than that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think those are the two biggest reasons is low basis, so big tax consequences, and then kind of the cyclicality of oil, so don't really feel comfortable unloading it where oil prices. And I would also add, this is a little less common, but we do see it, just inertia right? The, um, just not making a decision, right? There wasn't a tactical decision of, okay, am I holding it? Am I selling it? Am I doing this? It just vested and, and I, you let it accumulate. So those are really the three biggest reasons that we see people doing that. And the reason why it's important to identify the reason why is because some of these strategies are better for solving certain portions of these than others, but kind of identifying your why helps you to see, okay, what, what are you trying to accomplish? Do I have a why? Or is it just something you know that happened over time by me consciously not making a decision. And it kind of informs the narrative as to how you move above and beyond that and begin to divest if you do have concentrated stock. I want to also take a little bit and let's let's both talk about this. Why exactly is it important to keep it under 10%? Because there's so many topics that that need to be addressed here and, and it is just critical to your net worth, to your future wealth um, to understand this. Attribution is a big idea here. Uh, market capitalization and market weighting is a big idea. And so even if we can just take a couple of minutes and go into the weeds here, you need to be really careful about having more than 10% into any individual stock because most likely the stock that you have is probably not going to go bankrupt, right? But Jared, how many companies do go bankrupt or have such a catastrophic event that they fall out of their uh, category every year? I mean, it's it's dozens. Yeah, but over like since the inception of the S&P, right, more companies have had that versus, you know, delivering the returns that the stock market's created. And that's such a good point attribution cuz oil and gas is is has like hypercyclicality. So there, you know, oil can be on a tear and there's a lot of casualties and people will get over leveraged and so thoughtfully managing that risk. You don't want your ability to retire to be contingent on the performance of one company, right? If 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 you make a diversified investment, right, you, you're banking on infrastructure, global capitalism doing its thing long term, right? And th and that's the hope, and that's that's what you're what you're positioning your portfolio for. If you have a significant, if your ability to retire is contingent on the performance of one company, you have a lot, you have very little control over that. And the data shows historically, from an attribution perspective. The S&P over long periods of time is up and to the right, but there have been a lot of casualties along the way, and you don't want to get caught in those crossfires. And, you know, I do think that uh, oil and gas in investors have a little bit of an advantage here behaviorally. And we actually have some clients that, that worked at a large oil and gas company, and they may have a really large exposure to a tech company. So not uncommon for us to see uh, just a really large position in Apple or Amazon or Google. Now, those are a little bit more difficult to deal with because, uh, Jared, I've heard that, you know, those stocks have done pretty well over the last decade. And you think about attribution, uh, so much of the S&P 500 return, you know, the S&P 500 has given us 16% a year for the last decade. Uh, but most of that 16% has come from a, a small number of companies. 
And so the reason why it's so critical to understand your concentrated position and to manage it properly is there is a really good chance that whatever you own is not going to be the one that's growing at 70% a year that's that's pushing the entire index forward. And there's just, just like you mentioned, this is a really tough idea to, to wrap your mind around. But let's let's go to let's go to Amazon or Google. So these are some of the most popular names uh, in the world. Uh, everybody wants to own these stocks, and in you know a little bit of fear of missing out here. Uh, when you look over the last decade, it's really tempting to say, "Why did I not have a much larger position to Google or Amazon?" And maybe I need to correct that now. Maybe I need to put a, a drastically large position there uh, because it's it's given way better returns than than other parts of the market. And the problem is this, it goes back to kind of a financial planning question. It's it's not just investments, it's financial planning as a whole. And, and the question is, what are the consequences if something goes wrong, right? And so asking that question, what is the downside? If something bad does happen to this stock, uh, and one thing I like to say is, you know, bad things happen to good companies. Uh, every time you think about an individual stock crashing, you know, being obviously with significant ties to Houston, uh, everybody thinks Enron, right? But Enron was was really more of a, a case of a, a bad thing happening to a company that was doing bad things, um, right? That that was not a bad thing happening to a good company. Uh, and so it's important to remember sometimes good companies that do really well, like GE, uh, just crash and crater uh, while other parts of the market do well. And so I think the point here to remember is chances are your individual stock position is probably not going to go bankrupt. Um, it probably won't. But the problem is you don't get to operate in that mindset because the consequences on your life, if you have a 40% position in Apple or Amazon and it goes bankrupt, even though the chances of that happening are extremely low, well, if it does, the consequences are not acceptable. So that needs to determine, okay, we have a concentrated stock risk here and we need to lower it. And Jared, it also ties into the point you made. Uh, if you have reached financial independence and you have significantly more assets than you need, well, you do have a little bit of wiggle room. Um, if you want to have a little bit larger of a stock concentration, technically you could if you want to. That's exactly right. Justin, let's let's kind of take that and pivot now that we've talked about why why are you concentrated potential why we don't think it's a great thing and you know kind of Ooh, what, can I bring up one more point? Yeah, go ahead. One more point. Jared, do you know like of the top 10 companies in the S&P 500, do you know how much of the S&P those top 10 companies occupy right now? I'm going to say 15%. That is historically uh, relatively normal. Right now, I think it's in between 25 and 30%. So my point in sharing this, uh, let's say Apple holds five or 6% of the S&P 500. That's why concentration is something to be aware of uh, as well. So why should you not have 25% of your net worth all in one company? Well, a diversified portfolio is not just going to be the S&P 500. So let's say that one of the big tech companies is 5% of the S&P 500. Well, the S&P 500 is maybe 40% or 50% or 60% of your entire portfolio in general, uh, because you should have small caps. You should have US small caps. Uh, you likely need international exposure. You likely need emerging market exposure. 
And I know that's a little bit painful because those have not returned the same as the S&P 500 recently. You don't get to invest in the past three, five, 10 years. Um, you have to invest in the future three, five, 10 years. And so if if you take the, let's say a, a tech company has 5% of the S&P 500, well, if you have a diversified portfolio, that company, one of the biggest companies in the world might occupy 2% of your investable assets if you have a properly diversified portfolio. And so put that into context, that, that that's just some helpful framing. Why should you address a 25% position? Well, a diversified portfolio probably isn't having more than 2% in any single company, maybe three, maybe four, maybe 5%. And so it's just some helpful framing when you think about what a sound globally diversified portfolio looks like. Uh, it, it, it probably is not going to have that much. And Jared, love that quote. Uh, Concentration builds wealth, diversification keeps wealth. And so, you know, you can take a little bit of a risk if you want to uh, when you're on the younger side. But if your goal is to stop working and turn your assets into a stream of income that you're not going to outlive and you're not going to run out of money, well, then we're talking about preserving wealth. And we want to be really careful about, about high concentrations of individual stocks. Yeah, definitely. Let's pivot and talk about restricted stock units or RSUs. And one of the big reasons I think we're going to talk about RSUs a little bit is because it is a big driver as to what creates concentrated stock positions, right? Of course, there are other forms of equity compensation. There's incentive stock options. There's phantom stock. There's employee stock purchase plans. There's lots of different types of equity comp, but in terms of the most common across all the super majors and big companies we see are are restricted stock units. And it may be worth having a whole nother podcast talking about all the various types of equity comp, but this is the meat and potatoes of equity compensation for a lot of the employers we see. So Justin, I think a good place to start here too is just kind of a brief overview of what is what are restricted stock units. Great thought. So restricted stock units, uh, really common to have part of your compensation. You know, you can dice it up a lot of different ways. You can have compensation as just regular income. You can have compensation as stock, often in the forms of RSUs. Uh, you can also have bonuses um, that, that are more of a lump sum payout based on performance of you or and or the company. And so understanding RSUs and where that fits in, that's going to be an important framing. And, you know, I guess one thing we can start with, Jared, just the, the tax consequences of, of initially receiving, receiving the RSUs. What, the, what does that look like? Yeah. So from a timing perspective, there's two, two events related to restricted stock units that you need to know about. There's a grant date and a vest date. So grant is when the shares are credited to you. Um, investing is when you actually receive the tangible economic benefit of those shares. And there's usually a lag between when shares are granted and when they vest uh, as, as a mechanism for uh, employer retention, right? So a lot of times we'll see two, three years before when, when you're awarded the units to when they're actually available to you where you can do whatever you like with them. But restricted stock units are interesting because when they vest, not when they're granted, when they vest, all of the vesting amount, which is basically uh, the number of shares time the market price of those shares are taxable as income to you. And it's interesting because uh, unlike incentive stock options or some other forms of equity compensation, there's the restricted nature of them means that you don't really have a say in the matter. When they vest, they vest, and you are subject to that income tax when they vest. And so at that period, the cost basis 
is equal to the market value. And I'm probably losing some people here. So Justin, you could kind of fill in the gaps. The cost basis is equal to the market value. So there's no additional tax at, at the moment they vest above and beyond the income taxes that are paid. And you look like you're about to say something. Anything you'd add there before I keep going? I think that's that's really good. Just to you know, really dial in some big picture important points here. IRS, the IRS is looking at RSUs and they are delineating. So a grant, not a taxable event. A uh, vest, you know, that is you are you are taking possession that you are getting paid, uh, and the IRS views that as a taxable event. But that's really good stuff too. We talk a lot about um, different taxes uh, as it pertains to your financial life on this podcast. So income tax, uh, I've said this a lot. Income tax is taxed at different brackets than capital gains. And another huge bracket to be aware of that we're not going to talk about today: Medicare uh, premium brackets, totally separate bracket. And so, Jared, that, that was perfect. You know, you have the IRS views that that vesting date as a uh, income taxable event and then future growth on that stock uh, then pertains to capital gains. Well, potentially, depending on <laughs> what the holding period and stuff. So not cut and dry. That's right. So, yeah. So when, you know, so if, if your shares are vest at $100 a share that you'll pay income tax on that and $100 will be your cost basis. If it appreciates 20% over the year and goes to $120, the difference between the $100 that you that the shares vested at and its current market value, the delta, so the $20 per share would be subject to, could potentially be subject to capital gains. And so there's, there's a lot going on, but that's at a high level, the mechanisms of restricted stock. And it's important that we talk about this because, you know, this idea of, you know, you've identified, okay, concentrated stock is a problem. If you're currently employed in an oil and gas company, you are going to continue to get awarded stock and, and you may continue to receive stock, in which case your concentration issue will become even larger over time. And one of the good opportunities here is to, to kind of stop the bleeding. So if you think about when restricted stock units vest, you pay the income tax, there's no event. Divesting from that employer stock and diversifying those funds um, before capital gains begin to accrue and, and additional tax consequences are created with a concentrated stock, that, that may be a great time to just you know begin to stop the bleeding and make sure that the percentage of the pie that your concentrated stock is doesn't get even bigger over time. Jared, love that. Uh, what was the question you asked in the very first bullet point of this podcast? Identify your why. Why are you concentrated? Why? Yes. Why are you concentrated? And so that's that's a really important thing. Always coming back to, well, well, why do I want to continue to own this position? And and why do I want to continue to own more of it? You know, just a quick tangent. Uh, I love RSUs. When you think about company compensation structures, I love the idea of giving employees uh, exposure to ownership in the company. Uh, and you think about the role that that's played. Uh, Jared, you're coming to us from Fayetteville, Arkansas. Um, so uh, how many millionaires has Walmart created? Even back to early days, people that are just working in a Walmart store, unbelievable amounts of, of wealth and, and progress has been created because a, companies have decided to give stock as compensation. And so love this, uh, but we do need to come back to why do you own this amount? And, you know, Jared, you, you think about that 10% rule or five to 10%. So if you have a million dollars, probably don't want more than a hundred thousand. If you have 5 million, probably don't want more than 500,000. But if you have 20 million, well, there's, there's a little bit more leeway there, right? It may not be the end of the world if you have more than 10%, but we have to go back to why, well, why should you? 
Is it because you you really believe that stock is going to outperform everything? Is it because there's a huge tax consequence now, but the tax consequence will get better over time? Why exactly is it? Is it because the, the stock just crashed and we're pretty confident it should recover? Uh, there needs to be a why as to why do you own what you own? Yeah. That, that's a great point. And this is, yeah, this is really kind of step step one is like once you've identified, okay, I do in fact have a concentrated stock position and I do want to reduce it. This is defense. Before we even get to offense, kind of some strategies where there are tax consequences, this is the best way to not make it any worse. And with other types of equity compensation, the strategy may be, or the way to think about it may be a little different, but um, due to the lack of flexibility and you know the income tax that you realize, it's just a great way to, like we said, stop the bleeding. You know, I wish I would have said this at the beginning, uh, but one thing, you know, and I, I say this in our white papers, quick note on that. Um, I think we have white papers for four or five different large oil and gas companies now, and uh, you can find those on our website or shoot us a message. Uh, it's essentially one white paper that we then made individual tweaks to try to include specific details for each company that we have it. So ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Baker Hughes, Chevron, and I don't, I don't think we have Shell yet. We need to do one for Shell and maybe BP. One thing I say in that white paper is that your greatest asset, like your wealth, your financial freedom, your greatest asset is, is most likely the present value of your future earnings. And so you think about that, understanding the why, understanding what you own, why do you own what you own? Well, your greatest asset is the amount of money you're making right now in turning that future income stream into enduring wealth that gives you the ability to stop working at some point. And so really, really great to understand what exactly are you doing to build wealth? How are you moving towards financial freedom? And, uh, you know, more often than not, you need to be really careful about the consequences of letting RSUs, uh, Jared, what did you say? Inertia just takes it away. Uh, well, you continue to get a bunch of RSUs every year. You never sell them. And so you wake up in 20 years and a tremendous amount of your net worth is all in one company. If that was Apple 10 years ago, well, great news for you. But if it was some other companies that haven't fared nearly as well, that's not that's not as enjoyable. Yeah. For every one Apple, there's five, five to 10 companies that wish they were Apple. <laughs> So yeah, we've talked about a good defense. Now let's kind of move towards having a good offense. What are some of the strategies in place? You know, you have concentrated stock across a bunch of different types of accounts and maybe tax consequences and kind of how to move out of those or what are some things that that we see people do or that we may we may propose uh, to kind of manage this concentrated stock position. And I feel like a good, and, and we've we've had a whole episode on net unrealized depreciation, but it'd be good to kind of talk about NUA inside of your employer plan as it's related to managing concentrated stocks. So I'd love for you to kind of just briefly go over, hey, what is NUA again? Just a quick refresher. And then with the lens of managing concentrated stock, on, how does this fit into that? Great. Uh, NUA, essentially having a stock plan inside of your 401k. So you have company stock exposure in your 401k. A 401k is most often a pre-tax uh, vehicle. Obviously, you can have after-tax and Roth in there. But NUA is taking stock shares that are in a pre-tax 401k and taking them out of the 401k and putting them in a non-retirement brokerage account. Why would anyone want to take money outside of a retirement account? Well, your pre-tax retirement accounts, all of those are subject to income tax. 
and a brokerage account, if you can get long-term capital gains, those have advantaged tax rates. Capital gain rates, long-term capital gains tax rates are lower than income tax rates for the most part. It's important to understand that in UA, that's what you're doing. You're isolating shares that have a really low cost basis uh, because if you have a low cost basis, you would rather be taxed as capital gains rather than income tax on that. And so what are strategies to work around that? Well, it really matters where you work at. So ExxonMobil has their uh, savings plan with Voya and Voya is pretty incredible in the fact that they do have share by share cost basis. So if you look on page three or four of your statement and you see the giant spreadsheet list of, of individual cost bases with your uh, stock position, that's really helpful because you can isolate, well, some of these shares may make sense for NUA. Some of these other shares may not make as much sense. So maybe there's positions with a really high basis close to the current market value, and you may just want to isolate and sell those positions and diversify. If you're at Chevron and the um, stock position is uh, essentially split up into two different buckets uh, at Fidelity, and one of them has a really low cost basis, you might want to keep that for NUA. And uh, the disclaimer that we always share, this is not specific advice. NUA is very delicate. Uh, you need to speak to a professional who knows NUA well. So you may you may want to retain that low basis position. You, you might want to diversify the other uh, Chevron position that, that doesn't have a low cost basis. Or if you think about, gosh, I think ConocoPhillips, you've got some of the leveraged stock funds versus non-leveraged stock funds. Again, big picture, NUA, if you're trying to diversify and, and lower the amount of exposure you have, you just want to be mindful. Can you diversify positions that have a high basis and keep positions that have a low basis? Because generally speaking, again, you need to seek your own advice on this. Generally speaking, low basis shares make a ton of sense tax-wise for NUA. The high basis shares may not make as much sense. Yeah, that's right. And one, yeah, one of the reasons we like employer stock in your 401k is there's no capital gains consequences, potentially with the NUA, but any transactions or rebalancing that happens inside of that 401k plan, um, there's no capital gains realized for that. So that that's why kind of understanding the, the NUA implications, but also some potential shares that may not be good for NUA or that you know you wouldn't NUA, that'd be a great way to kind of begin to chip away at that concentrated stock position without you know, creating any any tax liability. That's a really good point. Uh, when you think about stock plans as part of your compensation, if you have, you know, stocks that are granted to you, you've got a vesting date and it's vesting. You know, Jared, you just mentioned that when it vests, that's a that's a, that's income tax right there. And the company and the IRS isn't going to care if you happen to have an inherited IRA that you need to take a giant distribution from this year on top of all of your other income. You know, that that RSU it, it, it's coming. Uh, that is one nice thing about you know, having NUA within a 401k, you do have a little bit more control over exactly when, how, and what is taxed. That's a great point. So moving on to the next thing, I think it's good to talk about, because we've we've seen this a decent amount, especially in the past couple of years, somebody that's holding company stock at a loss, but is still bullish on the prospects of oil in the intermediate term. So for the type of person where they have a, a realized loss in the position they're holding, but they're, they're still optimistic on the prospects of oil or feel like it's well below what its reasonable average is, what, what are some strategies and ideas we can, we can employ there 
uh, or that that person should consider? Jared, this is something that we do that we do a lot. You know, when when we are in a taxable account, so a brokerage account, a non-retirement investment account, and uh, we see a loss, what do we typically do there? What do we like to think about there? Harvesting that tax loss. That's right. Sell it. Now that is that's kind of an interesting deal because you know we we also talk about investments a lot on this podcast, and uh, we kind of beat the drum that you never time the market. Uh, when markets crash, we we're not overly concerned or, or freaked out. We use financial planning to navigate that, and we like to uh, not try to time the market. Markets are going to go up and down. We're far more we're consumed. We're obsessed with what is this going to be worth in twenty years, thirty years. Superpower is thinking in long term timeframes when you're an investor. Uh, so that investment lens, if you if you put on your investment uh, perspective, you don't really like hearing. Well, if something's down, you sell it. But from a tax perspective, when something is is losing money, that's a tax asset. If you sell it, you can sell it as a loss, harvest that loss. Uh, that loss can be counted against your income up to three thousand a year. Can also be counted against future gains. Certainly, talk to your tax advisor about those opportunities uh, to get a little bit more specific for your situation. But that is one strategy that that is really attractive. If you own an individual position and it's at a loss, go ahead and sell it. But Jared, what do we do next? Yeah, that's that's part of the equation. But then this is kind of where it gets really exciting because if you're still optimistic on oil and gas, you could consider an oil and gas sector fund or ETF to rebuy into. And that has two benefits, right? If you're still getting the play, if the play is oil, you're still, you know, assuming that oil continues to rebound those, uh, the correlation of that basket of, of companies to the price of oil should be positively correlated. But the, the other really awesome benefit is you've removed the specific employer risk. So while it's still a really concentrated bet because it's one sector of the market and it's going to be a greater percentage of your portfolio than the than the global market cap weighted portfolio, a basket of stocks has less line item risk than one individual single stock. So in terms of risk management, it's still concentrated stock because you're making a sector bet, but it's not one individual company. So from a risk management perspective, we would say that's also a step in the positive in it in the right direction there. So it really accomplishes two benefits. It you know maintains exposure to the sector and kind of reduces some of this company-specific line item risk. That's right. Uh, remember, wash sale rule. That just means that you are not allowed to sell a stock at a loss and then the next day purchase that stock back again. Uh, there's got to be a month or so waiting period there. And so you're not allowed to sell, you know, say Chevron at a loss and then immediately repurchase that, that same position. Uh, but you can sell it at a loss, capitalize, harvest that tax loss, and then go purchase an oil and gas ETF. It's not going to have the exact same profile. Obviously, it's going to have lots of other companies. But Jared, I think you and I would agree that in a real sense, that can be a benefit because uh, back to attribution. So let's say that oil and gas, it's, um, you know, let's go back to maybe June of last year uh, and it's, you know, valuations are, are very, very low. Oil and gas stocks are, are certainly struggling at that point. Well, even though you look at the the sector as a whole and you could see that, hey, it's probably going to rebound. There's probably going to be a pretty good opportunity because the price is so low. Uh, there's still going to be losers, right? Like there's still going to be individual oil and gas companies that technically could go bankrupt, um, technically could have extraordinary risk. And so there's so much uncertainty there with individual companies, but you are pretty confident that the sector as a whole could potentially recover. 
And so if that's your position where you've got a tax loss, you want to harvest it, an oil and gas ETF could be a, a helpful resource just because you're getting exposure to the industry. Uh, but it's also not a situation where, you know, let's say you work at Occidental and you're really concerned about that individual position of 18 months ago. You don't have the individual company exposure in an oil and gas ETF that might have several, lots of different company names in it. So there's a there's an element of safety there. Yeah, that's right. So kind of to summarize where we're at, step one is a good defense, stop the bleeding, future vests, be methodical about, you know, divesting from those. NUA and kind of high basis shares in your employer plan being a good opportunity to divest from with minimal to no capital gains. And then kind of stuff at a loss, the tax loss harvest out of, and then move into an oil and gas ETF to, to remove the company-specific line item risk. Let's talk about the last piece here, which is employer stock that's low basis. What are some things we can do there or some potential strategies or ideas? Because this one, quite frankly, is the hardest, right? Because there's a tax bill. It's this weird thing where you know we want to be conscious of the taxes, we don't want the tax tail to wag the dog, to use that analogy, and be so hyper fixated on ta- on taxes that we're really creating this really problematic, systematic portfolio risk that could be catastrophic and that could make the potential taxes look like the much lesser of those two evils. So this is this is an interesting one because it's, it's a little more delicate, but and we want to be prudent here. And there's you know tax optimization strategies, but you know with that overarching theme of the tax tail cannot wag the dog. We definitely need to be consider and be thoughtful about taxes, but having too much concentrated stock, I would say could be a greater potential risk than paying a little bit in taxes. Great thought, Jared. There's so much to that to just really grasp onto. Um, it It's going to be tempting if you have a bunch of low basis shares and you're facing a huge tax bill. It's going to be tempting to punt the ball down the road. But again, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? If your biggest priority financially is is being able to not work and have the freedom to retire and, and start taking income, well, I mean, you cannot let the tax tail wag the dog, even if it's the greatest company in the world. You really don't want 50% of your, your investable assets all in that. Um, so back to the ETF thing. Uh, so we talked about potential oil and gas ETF as being an option when you think about harvesting tax losses. Uh, there's also ways to build your portfolio by having exposure to the S&P 500 in removing oil and gas. Uh, so you can have an S&P 500 X oil and gas position. And so if you've got a low basis position and you need to build other assets to have a properly diversified portfolio, there are specific tailored ways where you can do that. That's one of the things we love to think through is, is there a really specific exposure here to one specific company? Well, maybe we don't need a whole lot of other exposure to that industry. So let's build your portfolio around uh, that position. Um, so, you know, I, I kind of mentioned a negative example. A lot of firms have eight different models and they shove millions of clients into every model. Uh, so you're invested the exact same as, you know, five million other people. Maybe not the end of the world. It, it may not be a bad thing. But you can have a much more tailored experience uh, and without blowing up your position and creating that huge tax bill. Yeah. And that's right. Like with the S&P X energy, you're doubling up. Like if you own a, a U.S. large equivalency, that that fund owns probably the ticker that you hold, right? So not only do you have it in your account, but in some of the funds that you may own. And so preventing the doubling up is beneficial. It's important to caveat here that the S&P X energy 
it's better because it helps manage, you know, the exposure to that sector, but it's still, you know, there's still a line item risk component, right? You're still allocated to one specific company and excluding an entire sector. So that, you know, that's a, that's a trade-off. You're taking the line item risk there. That's why this decision's super personal. So it's a potential strategy, but kind of thinking through, you know, maybe you don't have your specific oil and gas position account for all of your portfolio's uh, exposure to the entire sector, but have a little bit of exposure to help kind of reduce this sector's concentration. So it's very nuanced and, and something kind of worth considering. But yeah, that's a great point related to the funds. Let's talk a little bit about giving and how low basis stock kind of fits into that because that's that's a great, great opportunity. Justin, you want to you want to touch on that and gifting low basis stock and kind of talking about the benefits of that? Yes. Let's give a quick example. Wouldn't it be easy if every stock traded at $100 a share? Uh, you know, it feels like all of the examples we use, like the stock needs to be $100 a share just to make things clean. So we've got a $100 per share stock. Let's say that you purchased it for $10 uh, decades ago. And maybe you've got a significant position and you paid $10 is now worth 100 Well, if you sell it, um, depending on your other income and your tax situation, you're probably going to you know, have a pretty uh, substantial capital gains tax bill there. So you could give that to charity and you could give all of it. You could give some of it. Uh, the main point here is if you have appreciated stock and you like to give to charity, stop giving cash. Don't put your credit card in. Don't put your checking account or, or don't write a check. Don't give cash to charity. Instead, gift that stock to charity. There are different tax deductibility rules. Uh, tax uh, charitable contributions are either 50% deductible if it's cash or 30% deductible if you give a security. But there's there's a lot of ways to understand that. And so, you know, certainly talk with your uh, uh, CFP tax advisor about those different opportunities. But if you've got a $100 stock and you bought it at $10, that's a great opportunity to take that position. And if you're giving to charity at all, give that stock to charity. And uh, I think we've talked about this before, but you can also bunch a lot of charitable contributions into one year and double up on property tax, potentially uh, mortgage interest. So give yourself a huge itemized deduction one year and you can use a donor advice fund to diversify out of that position. You don't pay any capital gains when the donor advice fund diversifies and then grant to the charities of your choice over the coming years. And so pretty huge opportunity with that. Yeah. And the only thing I would add, just from an operational perspective, uh, the donor advice fund, which we're big fans of, um, is a great vehicle to kind of streamline your gifting. But also there are, we will say there are some charities that don't have the infrastructure, especially smaller, local, more localized ones to take in appreciated stock or a stock bank account, or it's kind of a, it's a difficult process. So in, in that sense, some some charities won't take that stock. So having a donor advised fund where you can transfer the stock and then making a gift from the donor advised fund could make sense and could be easiest in the charities, or you know could be a good learning opportunity to talk about the benefits of of why they they should accept stock. But that's just something from an operational perspective that uh, that we've seen and and that you need to be mindful of. But yeah, it's you know by making the concentrated gift, uh, you're getting out of the position sooner. But even if you're just kind of methodically transferring some stock, it's it's kind of giving getting rid of some of that. And I, I would start with the lowest, I would consider starting with the lowest basis shares and just kind of work your way from the bottom because those have the biggest potential future tax consequences. So that's a really easy way to just begin kind of trimming from the bottom in terms of the most 
tax inefficient, the biggest tax to, to use the counter of what you said, tax assets to get rid of some of the biggest future tax liabilities. Well put, well put. I want to kind of also, you know, we've talked about a lot of ideas here. Why is it so important to consider these? Why wouldn't you just sell everything or give everything at once? Well, it's possible that your tax bill is going to be way less if you slowly diversify, right? Jared, we've talked about this. There is a 0% capital gains tax bracket. Um, so there is a possibility that if you have some concentrated positions, uh, you could pay a lot less in taxes if you wait for a few years, wait until your income's lower, wait until you retire and you don't have income. And so that's why it's important to kind of have all of these tools in your, in your tool chest uh, because there's so many ways to navigate this. Take low basis shares, gift those to charity. Some of the higher basis shares, maybe you hold on for a little bit and do an S&P 500 X oil and gas position to tailor, more hand tailor your entire portfolio around uh, that high concentration. Jared, there's also one other opportunity with gifting, and that is gifting it to your children. Something to be aware of there. If you happen to be in a situation where your children are going to be taking some of your stock, inheriting some of your stock, there's kind of a difference between whether you gift children stock while you're alive or after you pass away. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah. And that's it's kind of a controversial take because a lot of people say, hey, don't don't gift stock while your children are living because they inherit your cost basis. If you purchase the shares for $10 a share and they're trading at 100 to use this great round easy share number, your children would inherit that $10. But if your children inherited or beneficiaries inherited the stock after you passed away, their basis would be the uh, would be the dollar amount at which they inherited it. So if they inherited it, uh, at $100, it would be their cost basis would be $100. So there wouldn't be any tax and any appreciation above and beyond that would would be taxable. So Justin, why would somebody gift, potentially gift to their kids if they get a step up in cost basis as it exists today, right? Of course, everything's subject to change. What would be the potential benefit? Why wouldn't I just wait to get the step up in basis? I'm glad you asked, Jared. The answer is that it is possible that you could be in a high tax bracket, right? But your kids may not be in a high tax bracket yet. And so let's say that your your children are adults now. They are on their own. And so they're working, doing their own taxes, stuff like that. But maybe they're married and they're making $90,000 this year. And maybe you're making $280,000 this year. Pick any you know big, small number you want. Well, your child does have a 0% capital gains tax bracket. So you could gift some of those shares to your some of those shares to your child and they could potentially go all the way up to adjusted gross income of around 105,000 or so and they're still at a 0% capital gains tax bracket. So to use that analogy, maybe the maybe your child is married and the total household income's 90,000 and you give them a portion of stock and they sell 15,000 more in capital gains. They were able to do that at the 0% capital gains tax bracket. But if you, let's say you were making a million dollars this year, if you sell those shares, you're going to pay 23.8% as a long-term capital gains rate. So would you rather have those shares pay 0% or 23.8? Now I love this topic because um, one thing that, that Jared and I talk about a lot is financial planning. Every area of financial planning uh, affects each other. And so right now we're having an estate planning discussion. And this entire podcast has been about investing and tax planning. And so this is a huge topic because if you have children that are in a low tax bracket right now and you know that you want to give some of your assets to them at some point, if you want to play a financial role in their life, 
Well, there could be a reason why you would potentially give some high appreciated stock shares to your children um, if they can capitalize on the 0% capital gains tax bracket and you can't. But Jared, you know, let's say that you are listening to this podcast and you're 90 years old and you've got a million dollar position all in one company that's trading at $100 a share and you bought it for $10. We would probably not tell you to do that. We'd probably tell you to build a, a tailored portfolio with an oil and with an S&P 500 X oil and gas if, if that's the situation. And, you know, again, you really need to speak to your professionals to get your own advice on this. And this is not this is educational. This is not advice. But if someone is 90 years old and has a really substantial position, the entire scope of what you're trying to accomplish likely changes. The strategy changes a lot there. Yeah. And that's that's a great place to kind of wrap it up because we presented a bunch of different potential strategies and it's it's like a soup, right? The proportions to which you use these are very specific to your preferences and your situation. So it, it's not a use one or the other. It's use it's both and some may become relevant at different phases versus others. So it's it's a very personal decision. I guess one parting piece of uh, encouragement would be to take inventory. Hey, why why do I have this position? What do I think is a reasonable position? But then try to be systematic as to as to what you want to do. One of the things here is, you know, we talked we've talked about this idea that Carl Richards coined is the behavior gap, you know. You make suboptimal decisions when when there's a lot of portfolio volatility. So deciding beforehand, hey, Here's what I think. I think, you know, in, in this number is personal for you. Hey, let's say I think 5% is what, what I want my target to be or 8% or 10% or 12%. And I want to get there over X numbers of years. A great way to do it is to be, okay, in light of that, here's how much I need to sell every quarter. Get systematic because as, as the volatility kicks in and the price moves up and down, it's easy to compromise and kind of set goal, you know, move the goalposts. So as, as you think about all these various strategies, Coming back to why really matters. And then identify once you've identified, okay, why did I get here? Okay, where do I want to be? And then become really systematic and intentional. And you can do that yourself or you can kind of work proactively with, with an advisor to, to do that. But having a set of rules and principles and a, and a goal, an established goal line before you even start doing any of this stuff is really important. That's great. I love this topic. Uh, you may have already mentioned this, Jared, but this topic came from a listener. Um, and so we love if you have ideas that you really want us to discuss on this podcast, shoot us a message, send us some questions to, to talk about, um, because this is a really fun topic that has so many consequences in your financial life. Um, and so we love tackling this. Yep. And you could send those messages to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.